Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at viking.com. From the opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. Donald Trump's first criminal trial could soon be back on the schedule after an appeals court rules he is not immune from prosecution. Plus, the Supreme Court is set to decide whether Colorado can kick Trump off the ballot as an insurrectionist. Welcome, I'm Kyle Peterson with The Wall Street Journal. We're joined today by my colleagues, columnists Kim Strassel and Alicia Finley. The judge in the first trial scheduled for Donald Trump, the case involving his attempts to overturn the 2020 election, had originally scheduled a trial date for March 4th. But that date has been pushed in part because of an appeal that Trump has made up to the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, arguing that the president is immune from prosecution, particularly for official actions that he takes while in office. Kim, this is a, a, an issue that has never been squarely decided by the Supreme Court, a novel one. And the panel that ruled yesterday says as much in its decision, saying that this is a, a novel question. But it answers in a sweeping fashion that the answer is no, according to this unanimous three-judge panel. It's an unsigned opinion. What do you make of this and the arguments that Trump is making, the arguments that the panel makes in response? Well, to sum up what the panel said, and I think this is the key line of it, it says up at the top of the opinion, for the purpose of this criminal case, President Trump has become citizen Trump with all the defenses of any other criminal defendant. But any executive immunity that may have protected him while he served as president no longer protects him against this prosecution. And there were some arguments that Donald Trump's team had made that weren't very sound as to why he was immune. Some of them were kind of silly. He essentially made the case that because he had already been impeached and acquitted in the House and the Senate, on some of these issues that he couldn't also be criminally tried for it. And the judges, the panel, I think, rightly dispensed with those arguments fairly quickly. The piece that you're talking about was the more substantive aspect of Trump's argument, which is this question about official acts. And I agree with you. I think that they didn't take those issues seriously enough, which will raise a big question as to whether or not the Supreme Court now decides to weigh into this. Essentially, what the court argued was that there are certain limits on this and that no man essentially is above the law. The president had pointed to the decision of Marbury saying presidential official acts can never be examinable by the courts. This panel decided to make a distinction between discretionary actions and ministerial actions, and we can talk about that a little bit more. But they essentially said that presidents are indeed subject to prosecutions. They also pushed aside, I think, what were some very serious arguments that the president's team that the opening of criminal liability for a president could get in the way of the ability for him to actually take occasional sweeping actions because of the fear of later prosecutions being hit by a raft of debilitating lawsuits or prosecutions upon leaving office and that this would chill presidential actions. They gave very short shrift to that argument as well. In essence, I would sum it up by saying that I think some of the arguments they made are worth 
worthy and interesting, but that they didn't really delve into the outer contours and complexity of this to a degree that the Supreme Court might want it to be done for such a consequential case. One of the precedents to keep in mind here is a 1982 case called Nixon v. Fitzgerald. And this was a case brought by a government worker who was laid off. And then he argued in court that he was laid off because of political retaliation, that he had testified before Congress. The administration didn't like the way that he had testified. And what the Supreme Court said in that case was that the president has absolute immunity for official actions that are taken within the outer perimeter of his office. And here's the line explaining why they thought that because of the singular importance of the president's duties, diversion of his energies by concern with private lawsuits would raise unique risks to the effective functioning of government. And so, Alicia, if that's the precedent you're looking at, there are two questions in my mind. The first one is whether or not President Trump's actions in the run up to January 6, 2021, all of this stuff about these meetings of purported electors that were sending in purported certificates in states won by Joe Biden. But these electors were saying that they were the real electors and they were voting for Donald Trump instead, whether all of that was official actions that would even fall under this Fitzgerald precedent in the first place. And uh, the court could have said that that stuff is electioneering, that the president, if he gives the State of the Union before Congress and, and talking about his policies, that that's an official action. But if the president gives a speech at a private rally talking about why he should be reelected, that that's private conduct by a private individual who is running as a candidate. But this panel of the D.C. Circuit does not really get into that because they are declining to extend that Fitzgerald precedent at all. Here's what they say. We cannot accept that the office of the presidency places its former occupants above the law for all time thereafter, unquote. And one of the things that I think is interesting about that approach is that it does raise some questions. Are there official actions that a president could take that a future president or a future administration could decide are violations of the law and they want to prosecute, even though it's a president who's duly elected, who is telling the executive branch what his policy is. Is that something that is prosecutable later on? And Alicia, the, the response by the panel is, I think, yes. And their defense to the idea that this is something that is, is going to happen often is that President Trump is the first one we've seen since the founding. They actually even go further and they suggest that this could actually be a benefit. The, the fact that they could be prosecuted in the future, that that could actually deter potential abuses of power. Um, the opinion says instead of inhibiting the president's lawful discretionary action, the prospect of federal criminal liability might serve as a structural benefit to deter possible abuses of power and criminal behavior. And it goes on to uh, cite a 1982 case, Harlover v. Fitzgerald, that says where an official could be expected to know that certain conduct would violate statutory constitutional right, he may be hesitant. And here again, the D.C. Circuit said as well, that's actually a good thing, rather than deterring the president from actually conducting you know, official acts that are actually completely legal, it just deters him from committing illegal acts. But they didn't really square, as you point out, with what is an official act, if you recall, um, the McDonald actually case over a decade ago uh, regarding the Virginia governor, and it was a bribery 
case and the Supreme Court overruled conviction saying that the Virginia governor in return for essentially gifts didn't actually commit a quote-unquote official act, but the high court hasn't defined official act. And it's potentially the D.C. Circuit might have been reluctant to wade into that, but instead they ended up just opening up this Pandora's box by saying that, well, a president could potentially be convicted for things that are within his job. I mean, obviously, I think we'd agree that if President Trump had gone out and shot someone on Fifth Avenue, he could be charged with murder, right? I mean, if he had done that in, in office. But let's say if he had ordered a drone attack, not in the U.S., but let's say Afghanistan or somewhere in this caused injuries and deaths of innocents. And what has been happening in recent years is actually more and more you get these torts being brought in the U.S. courts rather than extraterritorial cases. And the result could be that the president wouldn't just be sued, but he could actually be charged down the road for this uh, act that it was most people would agree that is an executive action that's just completely discretionary this would really chill his or or deter him from actually taking what are completely lawful actions within his scope of powers hang tight we'll be right back with more on this in a moment this episode is brought to you by vanta managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging Vanta's trust management platform helps you quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for SOC 2, ISO 27001, and more. Plus, save time by completing security questionnaires with Vanta AI. Learn how by watching Vanta's on-demand demo at vanta.com WSJ. That's V-A-N-T-A dot WSJ. Welcome back. Kim, this ruling also puts the Supreme Court in an interesting spot because, as I said at the top, the trial was scheduled for March 4th. Judge Tanya Chutkin has now pushed that. But this ruling on lack of immunity by the D.C. Circuit now is about to restart the clock and put the case back in Judge Chutkin's court. So remember, it only takes four Supreme Court justices to hear an appeal. And so it, it raises interesting questions of whether there are four Supreme Court justices who either think that there are problems with this ruling or at the very least think that an important question that has never been heard before, whether a president has some kind of immunity for official acts, that the Supreme Court ought to have the final word on that and not this lower appeals court. But if the Supreme Court decides to take the case, then that stops the clock again, and it makes it more unlikely that this case would go to trial before at least President Trump is probably going to be nominated by the party as the presidential nominee, if not after the election. We'd like to think that the court always makes these decisions based on the question of law, that all nine of the justices would look at this and say, this decision was decided correctly or incorrectly. And regardless of timing, regardless of politics, we are going to take the case for that reason or not. Of course, as we all know, there are many different calculations that go into the decision on whether or not they grant cert on cases or take up an appeal. And 
you know, in this case, I think one of them, as you note, is timing. Now, I would note that Jack Smith, the prosecutor in this case, has been pushing very hard to maintain that trial schedule of beginning on March 4th. And a couple of decisions about timing where he expressly said, we need to stay on this schedule because of the political ramifications of this, did not wash with the judiciary, which was good, by the way. We do not want to see the courts denying justice, as it were, because of political considerations. So I think that will be one thing. I don't think that it will necessarily be the deciding reason on whether they take it or not. My own view is that if there were an alternate consideration for why the court would take this, it's whether there are four justices that if they think this case was decided incorrectly, there are also four who are brave enough to take this case because it's yet the latest example of the court being asked to step into election year politics. As we already know, later this week, we're going to talk about it. They're hearing this case about the Colorado suit and whether or not Donald Trump can be stripped from the ballot over insurrection claims. They might say, well, we could let this stand and dodge this bullet. But I think one of the major problems with this case is is that one of the things the D.C. panel essentially did was say, we're going to allow these indictments to proceed because essentially men are angels and we have the safeguards of grand juries and the safeguards of the ethical obligations of prosecutors. This is why this has only happened one time in history and it's not likely to happen again. That's a really poor argument. Our entire constitution was in fact geared the other way. It's supposed to set up a system to guard against the fact that men are not angels and that often politics gets out of control. So I think the risk that if they don't take this up now, it comes back to bite them and that they end up having to deal with this in future scenarios and future constitutional crises and moments of political upheaval that will be in part because of the court's making if they dodge it now. Hang tight. We'll be right back after one more break. AI may be the most important new computer technology ever, but AI needs a lot of processing speed, and that gets expensive fast. Upgrade to the next generation of the cloud, Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is the single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. Do more and spend less, like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic. Take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com slash wallstreet, oracle.com slash wallstreet. Don't forget, you can reach the latest episode of Potomac Watch anytime. Just ask your smart speaker, play the Opinion Potomac Watch podcast. From the Opinion pages of the Wall Street Journal, this is Potomac Watch. Welcome back. Kim mentions the other context for this decision, which is that they already have President Trump on the docket tomorrow on Thursday. They are taking up this case from Colorado, which uh, decided to remove Donald Trump from the ballot as an insurrectionist under the 14th Amendment. Let's start with a prediction from former Attorney General Michael Mukasey on Fox News this weekend about what he thinks is going to happen in this case. I think they'll reverse. The question is the ground on which they will reverse. There's a whole child's garden of grounds that they could use. Um, I just hope that whatever ground they use, they are unanimous, because I think that would help validate whatever the decision is. Uh, If they go riding madly off in all directions, that kind of undermines the authority of what they do, even though it shouldn't. Alicia, what should listeners expect when these oral arguments begin tomorrow at the Supreme Court? This case concerns the Colorado Supreme Court uh, decision that disqualified 
Donald Trump from the 2024 presidential ballot under the what's known as the insurrection clause or, or section three of the post Civil War 14th Amendment. Um, and basically, section three says that any senator, House member, or officer of the United States who engaged in or committed a rebellion cannot serve again. And basically, the issue here is, one, does the president qualify as a quote-unquote officer of the United States? And the Colorado Supreme Court ruled that he did, overruling a trial court decision. And two, the question is, well, was President Trump's actions on January 6th, were they, quote unquote, engaging in an insurrection? And now again, this Colorado Supreme Court said he he did. I think the Supreme Court basically had to take this case. The main state uh, sector or secretary of state has also issued a similar determination. And you're seeing this across the country where uh, liberal groups or anti-Trump groups are trying to remove him from the ballot or, or get him disqualified. So again, I think the Supreme Court had to take up this case. Now, I think this should be a unanimous decision, but as uh, Mukasey mentioned, it's what grounds do they just decide it on this narrow, and I think what would be the straightforward ruling that, well, the president of the United States is not defined in this insurrection clause as a quote-unquote officer of the United States, or do they actually try to define what an insurrection is and whether what he did on January 6th could be defined as engaging in an insurrection? I don't think they really want to wade into that. And I think, this, again, if they wanted a unanimous ruling on this issue, they would take the former approach. But you might see some concurrences and dissents on the latter. I think that's an interesting way to frame it, because that's the heart of the issue. Is what happened on January 6th, 2021, is that an insurrection under the 14th Amendment, which again was framed after the Civil War and aimed at Confederates? And two, is what Donald Trump did in the lead up to that, does that qualify as engaging in insurrection? Because you have to meet both parts of that test. But Kim, I agree that if the, the goal for the Supreme Court, and you can imagine that Chief Justice John Roberts probably has this in mind, if the goal is a unanimous ruling or a near unanimous ruling, it may be more palatable for some members of the court to go with one of these more technical arguments, such as whether the president of the United States qualifies is even covered by this section of the 14th Amendment, which again, specifically names senators, representatives, electors for president, and then has this catch-all language, officer of the United States. Absolutely. And look, this would be a, a good case for the Supreme Court to agree to do that kind of technical decision making if it meant you could get a unanimous verdict, because I really think we need a strong message here for a whole bunch of political and constitutional reasons. And, you know, that one in and of itself, the technical argument is, in fact, very sweeping and strong. Not only is there a lot of other examples in the Constitution suggesting that the offices of president and vice president are different than that, there's actually history showing that initial drafts of that amendment had those titles in it, president, vice president, they were taken out in the end. You know, there's another technical question here as well, too, as to whether or not 
this amendment is self-executing, meaning, which I would argue it isn't, meaning it doesn't authorize the state courts or state officials to either enforce the provision or make a process by which they determine whether or not someone has engaged in insurrection. In fact, quite the opposite, this very specifically charges Congress with enforcing that particular aspect of it. And Congress did so at the time, back in the 1870s, by coming up with a law explaining how they were going to deal with this question of disqualified uh, office holders. So there's a couple of technical ways they can go. I think that the necessity of doing this is so powerful because if the court, for some bizarre reason, decided to actually allow this to stand, you could have a patchwork across 50 states of every state deciding whether or not a candidate could be on a ballot. You could have them coming up with their own random arguments for what counts as insurrection. I mean, you know, you could see a Republican state right now claiming that Joe Biden's failure to police the border somehow amounts to an act of or allowing an insurrection. So there's that problem. But I I think, too, if they don't do it unanimously and this comes across as a split court decision, it's going to make it look really political when, in fact, this should be a pretty cut and dry argument. It's way out of the bounds of normal legal thinking. Thank you, Kim and Alicia. Thank you all for listening. You can email us at pwpodcast at wsj.com. If you like the show, please hit that subscribe button. And we'll be back tomorrow with another edition of Potomac Watch. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.